Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. As we approach this concept this morning of resurrection, I don't want you to lose the marvel. This really happened. Jesus really did die. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Jesus really did do these things. This is not fiction. It is not a story that was written to make people feel better. It was not a story that was written to make you feel better. It really happened the way the scripture says. Historically, this is attested beyond beyond anything else. There are books, countless works you can read that go through why this is valuable and why this matters. Indeed, I, I want you to understand this the way our children do. You see, when I tell my child, and everybody in the room, by the way, just a heads up, everybody in the room Loves children here. Everybody in the room gets it. So if, if you're at all awkward about your kid being in worship or, or anything about that, I just want to give you some comfort. All of us are, and we're all awkward together, so hang in there. Um, we, we get it. It's alright. So, but I want you to, to see this as a child. Jesus says, let the little children come to me, and they run to him. And the disciples go, hey, wait, he's too important. you got to push him away. This is too serious for you to comprehend. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Because they believe what I'm telling them. This is John Elkins' remix paraphrase. It says something more as, unless you receive the kingdom as one of these children do, you have no place in the kingdom. There's an admonition there that we are to receive this truth as a child would, 
believe this, my children, when I tell them Jesus rose from the dead, I might say something like, you know, the mortality rate is 100%, and they're going to go, no, it isn't. Jesus rose from the dead. They're going to call me on it because they believe it, because it's true, and because it was told to them, and they've, they've seen the effects of it. So I want you first, just think about this story of the gospel again. I'm going to tell it to you again. We were all sinners who broke fellowship with God, every one of us. Now, there's theological presuppositions that are made that, that people try to make to make themselves feel better, but here's the reality we saw when we studied back in the book of Romans that chapters 1 through 3 says if you uh, our ancestors broke the law, our ancestors did it, people before us did it, then, oh yeah, the religious people do it, and oh, you do it too, and I do it, and no one is righteous, no, not one man seeks after God, not one man understands, no one uh, seeks after God, we all like sheep have gone astray, the venom of asps is in our lips, we are wicked, and by the law, no one will be justified in his sight. No one. And then that great and powerful phrase, but God manifested his righteousness apart from the law. And by manifested his righteousness, he means made it for you. Manifested it in you. In Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. Now, you tell that to a kid. What? I don't, I don't know God. I don't see God in that. You're telling me that, that I've died, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection lets me see and know the God who created everything. That's awesome. I did this with my life and God came and moved my hand and I get to see him. That's amazing. And this is how it happened. Jesus Christ was born a baby. God, who spoke the word into being, was born a baby. God, who said, let there be light, and light showed up. Let there be mountains, and mountains showed up said, this valley is going to be this low, this mountain is going to be this high, those stars are going to stay in that orbit perfectly in sync until I say otherwise. That God, the God who knits you together, and according to Scripture, is holding every fiber of your being together, even in this moment, was a baby. Came down as a baby. Made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being found in human likeness, humbled himself. Humbled himself to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross in obedience to God. What? The creator of the universe became a baby. Hey, you're not shocked enough. That's ridiculous. Unless it's true. 
which it is. It's insane, unless it's true. Fiction writers aren't that creative. I don't care who they are. They steal from Jesus' story. All of them. Every one of them. This is amazing. Second thing I want you to think about as we dive into these words in 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to think about the implications of this on you. You see, when I was little, I stole stuff. And I mean, I mean, really, I was five, six. But I would go to school and I'd come home with some toy in my back pocket that teacher didn't see me take. Some candy bar that belonged to somebody else. You know, something. Um, and at some point in there, I don't remember what age, what time, I don't remember. Um, most of you have heard my my testimony that I, I was I'm a Baptist missionary's kid. Uh, I was I was raised with my dad at like four years when I was like four years old. Going, who are you going to share the gospel with today? So I had a weird upbringing. I knew the truth of the scripture. Uh, I was it was drilled into me from a young age. And somewhere between the age of five, eight, nine, somewhere in there, the Lord landed. There's no other way to put it. Lord landed on me. And I changed. I used to steal stuff. I remember, I remember recognizing the moment. I was in some class. Don't remember which class. Don't remember the teacher. The teacher was probably mad at me for making noise and running around the room. That was pretty standard all the way through college. Um, and even now sometimes. So, the, they, they were probably addressing me and, and I remember I saw something and I, I wanted it and I went to take it when the teacher wasn't looking and I remember drawing my hand back almost unconsciously and thinking, yeah, that's not right. And all of a sudden I wanted to do what was right. All, it was just weird. Small moment. A small moment where I wanted to do what was right. Where there was evidence that something had changed in me. There was evidence something had changed in me. I was a, I was a kid. I was a child. I still have these moments, by the way. Today. Where I see something, I covet it, or I, or I think something that's not right, and I pull back from it, and I go, yeah, but that's, not right, and all of a sudden it goes off in my head and I go, something's different. Something's changed. And indeed, we see what changed in me in this passage. And it's what can change you. It's what will change you. It's what will set you free from those thoughts and those actions that you cannot disobey, that you do, and then you think, why did I do that? This is what will set you free from those things. So those two things in mind. Let's receive this as truth like a child. And then two, let's recognize the implications of it if it is true in us. So let's dive in. No more prep work. 
Let's jump right in. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul is teaching, the, he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, by the way, in my opinion, worst church ever. They have lawsuits going on between each other. They've got uh, sexual immorality between gross family members. They've got all kinds of issues. Everybody is angry with each other and everybody is backbiting. They've all got favorite preachers. They've all got their favorite preachers and they argue over who's the best. Never considering the content of what's spoken, they argue over who's the best. So... They, they are the ones he is addressing. And Paul is deeply concerned here at the end of the book that he has run his race in vain. He has preached the gospel to these people and they have not fully believed it or understood it. It has not transformed them and he is deeply, deeply concerned. So, Paul says, I would remind you of this gospel. Now, the gospel here is one that he preached to them. He spoke it to them. He taught it to them. He knows that they have heard it. He taught it to them. Second, it's a gospel. Look at the wording he uses. In which you stand. In which you stand. Not in which you sit. Not in which you kneel. Not in which you fall. In which you stand. By the gospel power. By the truth of this power, you stand. Look in Scripture and just do a cursory read of whenever it says the word stand in the New Testament and it's describing Christians. You are standing before the Father. Now, to understand the gravity of this, you really have to understand who the Father is. The Father is not just some old man with a white beard who's, you know, like, smiling. Hey, son, come here. Like, no, he's not a geriatric patient. He's not an old, wise man with a clipboard who's checking things off. He is both Father and righteous judge. So when you see Jesus, or when you see God the Father, when you see God in heaven, and He is sitting on the throne, there is one motion that everyone ends up making in Scripture. And that is to fall face down in front of Him. Our natural position before this God is on our face. Because of who we are, because of the way that we are, because of how we live because of who we are at our core. When we see God, there is nothing else to do but to fall face down and go, please do not destroy me. John the Apostle does it. Ezekiel does it. Jeremiah does it. Isaiah does it. Amos does it. Moses does it. All of them. Face down. And if you can compete with those guys. You can't. By the way, that was a sight jab. You can't compete with those guys. John actually walked with Jesus. Literally on the earth. He's called the disciple who Jesus loved. He lays his head on his chest. He's that guy. He's the only one at the cross. Granted, he's dressed like a woman and he's hiding. But he's the only one at the cross. This guy falls face down when he sees God. These 
This is a holy, righteous God who by all accounts, when we see him, we should be consumed. And yet, Scripture describes believers as standing before him. Not on our face, standing. Indeed, when John falls down, he is lifted to his feet. He is lifted to his feet. He is standing. Standing up before the Father. So, God wants to remind you first in this passage of Paul, uh, God through the word of Paul, through the letter of Paul here, wants to remind you in this passage that you stand and you are being saved. So this gospel is not only the power to stand in this world, the power to stand against sin, the power to stand up in the presence of an almighty God as his soldier, as a knight before him, the power to stand. It is also that which you are being saved. The concept of being saved is one that is constant in Scripture. It's this idea of salvation like driving. Salvation is like driving. You're in the car, you have started driving, you are driving, and you will continue to drive until you get to your location. You understand? When you get in the car, you start the car, you are driving. You started driving, you are driving, and you will be driving until you end. So Paul here says, this gospel you stand in and you are being saved in. I told you about when I was little and I had these inclinations not to steal all of a sudden. I know I got saved at a young age. You'd think I should be perfect by now. Good luck. That's not how it works. God continues to reveal in me new places for Him to refine and for Him to change. This is called the process of sanctification. And the problem that a lot of us have is that we don't want that process. It has nothing to do with the process. God is working it. And it will happen either painfully or joyfully. God disciplines those whom He loves. We don't want that process often, but this is the thing about the gospel. It continues to move in your life. The nature of salvation is that it's continuous, and it continues to move in you. Then he's got this warning. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, there's a conditional that's placed afterwards here. I want you to see this. There's a conditional that's placed afterwards here. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ and repented, of, if you've repented of sin, trusted in Christ, you believe in Him. And you believe in Him, that's great. Wonderful. The evidence of that belief is going to be that you persevere. The evidence of that belief is going to be that you persevere. And not just persevere in public. This is not that you would just persevere where people see you. This is that you would persevere in your soul. You would persevere. You would continue in the faith. If you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, the evidence of your salvation is obedience. 
The evidence of your salvation is obedience. Another way to put it, the fruit of your salvation and sanctification is that you follow and obey the Lord. That means everything. He commands and he leads and you follow. You are a knight in his service if you have believed. The evidence is that you follow. The evidence for a lack of salvation is that you disobey. Thus, that belief is false. Thus, your belief is false. So, I invite you now, before we dive into when he actually tells you the gospel message, that's the result, that's the, that's the gospel <coughs> basis, I invite you now, in this moment, examine yourself. Examine your soul. Has Christ moved in your heart to change you? Has he? If not, oh, repent from sin. Believe in Jesus. Trust what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection. Give it up. Give up sin. Give it up. It's not doing you any good. There's no value to it. Oh, but in Christ there's life. Life abundant. Life free. Believe. Trust. Follow. I don't know how else to say it. Just do it. If you need, if you need to pray with somebody about it, you need to talk with somebody about it, there are Godly men in this room, godly women in this room who will talk to you about what it means to trust in Christ. What it means to follow Christ. They will lay before you honest honesty about who they are. We're not perfect, but we believe in Jesus. And we know that he can change our souls. He has done it for me. Joy unceasing awaits. So Paul now dives into the gospel message here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is Paul's way of saying, pay attention. This is important. This is it. This is all that I really want you to hear right here. He says that now, just to be fair, 15 chapters in. This is what I want you to hear. Fifteen chapters in. He's talked a long time about a lot of stuff. But fifteen chapters in, he goes, Now this is the important part. Pay attention. Paul is a great preacher. He comes to his last point and goes, I got just one more point for you. And then rattles off seventeen. Let's do this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Christ died for our sins. This really happened. You see, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and without void. And he, he spoke life into the earth. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the day separate from the night, and it did. He said, let the earth teem with animals, and it did. Let the plants rise, and it did. He said, let us make man in our own image. And for the first time in creation, he actually stops, pauses, and 
crafts something out of the dirt. And then he breathes life into it. Some people say that the name Yahweh, the very name in the Old Testament, uh, you, we, we hear it said Yahweh or Jehovah, same four letters. Tetragrammaton is what we call it. That name is actually breath marks. Many theologians say that it's a breathing in and a breathing out, the very name of God being life given to us. So man and woman were created in a garden and they were perfect beyond all measure and, and they were uh, standard, they were walking with God, they were naked and unashamed, they were great, they were loving life and everything was wonderful and there was this tree in the middle of the garden and God said, don't eat of this tree, you can have anything else. And he tells them to spread out the garden, cultivate the garden, work the earth, have fun with the animals, let's do this, this is paradise Let's extend paradise outside of the garden and get to work. And Adam and Eve stay in the middle of the garden and a snake comes and says, Hey, did God say? He questions God's word. And Eve goes, Well, he said that we can't eat it or touch it. We'll die. And Eve adds to the words and Adam stands right next to her and says nothing. And they eat. And in the moment that they eat, they have broken the one command they were given. And I want you to understand what they were doing in that moment. They were taking what was good from God, a command not to eat. They were taking what God had said and they were saying, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. I see this is good. I say this is good. I'm going to do it. And it took and they ate. Then Adam and Eve hide. And God comes down and we have that legendary, that incredible phrase that just to this day pierces my soul when I, when I read it. Adam, where are you? Now understand that pierces my soul because Adam's not out of God's sight. God is omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient. He's omnipresent. Like God, God gets it and sees Adam. He knows where he is. Adam's behind a bush. And God is, Adam, where are you? This is akin to when my kid doesn't want to take a bath, so they hide behind the bathroom door. In the bathroom. Naked, ready to take a bath. In the bathroom. Giggling. This is akin to that. God walks in the garden. Adam, where are you? But Adam must have felt the weight of that. Because what he did was not simply make a different path or choose a different course of life. No, what he did was he rejected life. He and his wife rejected life. They said, I've got a better way. I'm not taking your way. God said, Adam, where are you? And all of a sudden, Adam realized, I am separated from God. Can you imagine years later, Adam plowing the earth, trying to dig, trying to get some food out of the ground, trying to tend the garden that will yield to him thorns and thistles. And he hears that phrase. 
Adam, where are you? Can you imagine him just falling down and breaking, just weeping? I'm broken and gone from God. What, what can atone for this? And then you read through the Old Testament and you see them constantly trying to atone. Eve has a kid. The very first chapter after they leave the garden, Eve has a kid and goes, Yes! I have gotten a son by God. Surely this will set it right. And he murders his brother. Noah, later on, is the only righteous man. And God saves him and eight people in a boat with all the animals. Yes, we own our crazy here. We do believe that. He saves him with all the animals and then just a chapter after he's saved from the flood, just chapter after he's saved through the flood, he's drunk in a field, debauched. And you move on to Moses, right? Moses, Moses will do it. He goes up the mountain, he gets the law of God and brings it down. And then Moses, oh man, he has so many flaws and errors that it's hard to count them. Joshua will do it. Moses brings the law to the people. He's in the wilderness. The people rebel. They're wicked. He's, he's not perfect. And then Joshua comes and they're like, Joshua will do it. Joshua will lead us into the land. And yet, what does it say at the end of the book of Joshua? He did not kick out all the Canaanites from the land like he was commanded. And you go to the judges and you're like, these judges will do it. And oh boy. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Judges while reading the first five books of the Bible, but if you read the first five books of the Bible, this is a fun thing to do. Just go through and mark out every rule that's given for warfare or for ruling or for kings. Just mark out every single one of them, make a list of them, and then count how many of them the judges break. It's a progressive break. By the time you get to Samson, Samson, if you were grading them, Samson has an F in the first chapter. That he's mentioned. He's in three chapters, and the first chapter he's mentioned, he's already flunked the test. And that's assuming you take some of those laws lightly, and just minus one point. So, we see constantly throughout Scripture that you can say of the Old Testament heroes, not the guy. This is not the guy. David rises to power, and David causes the downfall of Israel. Literally, causes the downfall of Israel. Why? Because he doesn't want to go to war when he's supposed to, and he stands up on his roof and he lusts after one of his soldiers' wives. Not only one of his soldiers, one of his best friends. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. He was with David from the beginning, before David was famous. Before David was king. And he takes his wife and causes the downfall of Israel. You move on and you see them exiled and you think, maybe, maybe in exile they'll be saved and nothing, nothing. It's more sin, more wickedness, more behavior. And by the end of the Old Testament, what you have is a temple built, a religious system set up, awaiting a king who will make it right. Awaiting a prophet, priest, and king who will make it right. Because the people can't do it. Look at the passage. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. You walk through the whole Old Testament waiting for Him. They keep talking about Him. He's going to come. He's going to do it. We read Isaiah 53, written 600 years before Jesus. 
And yet, every line of that chapter deals with him. He shows up, and Christ died for our sins. He died that you would be free from sin. What? We couldn't do it. God comes down and does it himself. He died for your sins. And how? In accordance with Scripture. It's been the plan from the beginning. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't God going, oh no, what am I going to do? i got to do something. And then suddenly throwing Jesus in the mix. No, this was the plan from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Jesus is that seed that we have longed for. Even before that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then in John chapter 1, we're told, by his word, Jesus is the word by which God created. We are saved from sin in Jesus Christ according to scripture. That he was buried, this verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. Jesus died for our sins and he really died. He really, he did. He didn't swoon. It wasn't an accident. He didn't pass out. He was dead. There's so many things that you can see in the crucifixion story and the narrative there that prove it. Things that in the first century they couldn't even say were scientific truth. And we know now medically that they are. Things like the blood separating from the water when he's cut in the side. He's, this is, evidence over and over and over. Jesus really did die. He really was buried. He was buried. And when he was buried, victory. Victory over sin. Sin dies in his grave. Sin dies in Jesus' grave. And those of us who have believed on Jesus Christ have been redeemed and rescued from sin. So that sin that binds you, that you feel like you're trapped to Brother, sister in Christ, you are freed from sin. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, he has done the work. Death died in his grave. Sin is dead. You are free. Believe it, because it's true. That he was buried and that he was raised. Jesus didn't stop at death. He didn't just die and then go, all right, I, I freed you from sin. Now you got to live righteous. No. I mean, how miserable would that be? Jesus dies and, and forgives us of sin and then gives us a list of stuff to obey. But I told you at the beginning, God's not standing there with a clipboard checking off your good deeds and bad deeds. Not when you're his. When you're his, he does something much greater than this. You see, God takes you by the hand and walks you through life. And when you fail, when you falter, when you misbehave, when you sin against the holy God, when you are unrighteous in your behavior, God grabs you by the hand and pulls you along gently at first. Unless you continue to rebel, then it gets harder. And his pull gets more thorough. But that pull is because you are his child. You are his child. And he doesn't let his child run into an oncoming train. He rescues you and pulls you to himself and walks with you 
Uh, there's that song that has very uh, minimal theological depth, but except for this. Oh, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. You know the song. Everybody's heard that. I don't know which famous gospel singer sang it. Um, love that song. Very little theological depth, very little meat to it. But it's true. Jesus walks with you and pulls you along. He's not a slave driver driving you from the back. He's not a tyrant calling you to run forward. He is walking alongside you, often carrying you through difficulty. You see, Jesus didn't just die and get buried and forgive you of sins. No, he died and was buried and he rose again that you would have life. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Do you not know that you've been buried with him through baptism into his death? You also have been raised to walk a new life. You are not the same. And if you persist in living as one who is the same, then one of two things is true. You are either inviting the discipline of your father which is painful, or you don't know him. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, for he is the king of glory, and he will walk with you. And he rose on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Again, this is testified to all through the Old Testament. Not a plan B. You want to know how to get life? From the beginning, life was trusting in the seed that that would crush the head of the snake. The offspring that would crush the head of the snake that would bless the nations. The offspring that would provide for generations upon generations of life. The offspring of God. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake, who would kill sin, who would cancel its effects, and who would bring us back into Sabbath rest with God. That is Jesus Christ, the righteous Hallelujah. Look at that. Like a child. What? He is risen. Yes. And then he says here, not only that, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. This really happened most of whom are still alive when Paul's writing, though some have fallen asleep. Now, just to be clear, when it says most of whom are still alive, that doesn't mean 2016. That means back when Paul wrote the letter. That's literature. Don't. Okay? Deal? Don't ever let somebody argue, well, the scripture's fouled because they said, no, have some logic when you read the Bible. It's right there. So, Back on topic. He arrives, he shows up to all these people, a lot of them are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says, he appeared to everyone and then appeared to me. How did he appear to Paul? I, I know you may know the story, you may not know the story. I'm going to tell it to you very quickly. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is going off to persecute people, and he is going to kill Christians. And on his way there, Jesus shows up and blinds them. Now, Jesus by this point has already ascended. 
<laughs> he has already floated into the sky. What? He's floated into the sky. And he got up on a hill as a man, flesh and bone, and they stood and watched him fly away. What? I know that you can imagine that because we have movies. And you see movies where somebody flies. But think about if you'd never seen a movie. And somebody told you, yeah, we were talking to him, and he, there were about 500 of us, and then he started to float away. And he just kind of kept going. And we were like, where'd he go? And then two guys in bright white clothes showed up and were like, uh, he's gone, go get to work. Yeah, I think those guys are crazy too. This is insane. Except that it's true. So, last of all, he appears to Paul. He blinds him. Back in Acts, great story to read. Uh, I would love to spend more time on it, but we're just going to keep moving. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, in Paul's testimony here, we see some truths that we ought to glean. If you have believed in Christ Jesus, if you have believed in Christ Jesus, then there is a recognition that who you once were is wicked. And that because of who you once were, you are no greater than anyone else now. That you are saved not because of your merit or your good or because you do good now. But you are saved because Jesus Christ the righteous has rescued you. Paul indeed is rescued by God. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. That should be on your forehead all the time. You ought to see that. You ought to worship with that. That ought to be something that feeds your soul. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not Superman, and I know that. But I'm also not what I once was. And I'll never be that again. And I am on my way to being more like Christ day by day by day by the grace of God. I am what I am. I'm in the step that I'm in. I'm in the place that I'm in. Oh, Christian, here, you are where you are by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Remember what we talked about earlier. What is vain belief? Vain belief is the belief that shows no fruit. Vain belief. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than them, than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached. And so you believe. The grace of God came with power and might and landed on Paul and changed his soul. And get this, this is the great thing. We, we would revel here in the idea that God does the work in your heart to change you and rescue you. But look at what Paul says. God does the work, but he uses your work. I worked harder than any of them. 
One of the greatest blights on the American church is lazy Christianity. People who might be saved, but don't know Jesus from a duck because they don't try to know him. You say things about God and they suddenly get mad, and then you point at scripture and go, I was just reading out loud. You read a passage of scripture and they get angry with you. And you go, I, look, I'm reading the Bible. Are you kidding? This is a blight on our society and on our world. This is the adversary subterfusing the church. But God's church will not be overcome. Hear me. God's church will not be overcome by that cowardly adversary. Indeed, Jesus Christ the righteous reigns. And he is victorious over sin and darkness. Paul works hard to know Christ. Listen, the last thing I want you to think is that Christianity is easy. That following Jesus is easy. It's not, but it's worth it. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It means sucking up your pride. It means being honest with who you are. It means finding community and investing in it. It means sticking around. It means sticking to what is good. Do not grow weary in doing what is good. For in due time, you will reap a harvest. This is Christianity. It is what we do. It is who we are. So, by way of closing, I want to encourage you, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, let this send your heart soaring. That Jesus Christ really did die. He really did get buried. He really was raised. And because of that, you are free from sin, able to overcome the darkness, and you are given life and life eternal. Life abundant and free. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, the invitation is open for you to believe. Repent from sin. That means stop sinning. Real simple language. Stop sinning and believe in Jesus. By believing in Jesus, what I mean is very simple. You trust what He has done to cover you before God and pursue. Chase Him. Chase God. Chase knowing Christ deeply. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 